a mother sent a note to her son's teacher when he entered into the first grade. Little Johnny, as you may know him. She said, Johnny is a very, very, very smart young man. He's got an extreme intelligence. He's very cooperative. You'll enjoy having Johnny as a student. You really will. But I just need to tell you that Johnny is also just a little bit hyper. And sometimes he gets into trouble. But just understand that Johnny is very sensitive. So if he starts to act up, please slap the child beside him and he will straighten right up. Now, what we need to understand is we learned from last week and we discussed about Pharaoh. And essentially, Pharaoh was slapped by God because God hardened his heart. And when we understood about God hardening his heart... For those of you who weren't with us this last week, it basically means that God did not create fresh evil in Pharaoh's heart, but that he moved some of the restraints from Pharaoh and allowed his hard heart, which it already was, hardened to be even hardened even more. And so, unlike the innocent child next to Johnny in the story, Pharaoh wasn't innocent. None of us are innocent. Pharaoh was a sinner, just like everyone else in the world. And so God removed his restraining hand. Pharaoh's heart becomes harder. And yet, what was the reason? We're going to find that out today. But let's take a look at verse 17 first as we look. And it says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So we understand this about Pharaoh. God raised him up. So let's go to verse 22 now. Let's start there. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience... Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in every place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring We would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. We want to look at this from this perspective this morning. Here is what he is saying in these verses. God's patience was exhibited before Pharaoh and in Pharaoh. And God's power was revealed 
in Pharaoh to Pharaoh to show his glory. So what we have is a twofold exhibit of the attributes of God, God's patience and God's power. And we need to understand what both are. Patience of God, that's the power of control which God exercises over himself, causing him to bear with the wicked and holding off the punishment that is due them for a set period of time. Folks, it's the patience of God saying this, I'm going to patiently bear with those who are wicked and in the right time, in the due course of time, they will receive a just and a righteous punishment. And for that reason, we have to understand that God was being very, very patient with Pharaoh. Stephen Charnock, an old Puritan theologian, says, The patience of God differs from mercy in the formal consideration of the subject. Mercy respects the creature as miserable. In other words, God sees us in our misery and he is merciful to us. Patience, though, respects the creature as criminal. In other words, we're guilty. We're standing before the bar of God. We're standing before his righteousness. He sees us as guilty before him. We are criminal. And mercy pities him in his misery... Patience bears with the sin for the sins of his people from the time of the flood to the time of of Pharaoh. How many years was that? Hundreds. Hundreds of years passed by where after the flood, what did people continue to do? God wiped them out during the flood, left Noah, those righteous people in the ark. But what happened? Man was so desperately wicked, he continued to sin for hundreds of years. Sin was going on at that time. Was that sin contrary to God? Absolutely it was. Was there immediate judgment upon them? No, there wasn't. Why? Because God was patient with them until he decided to interrupt his patience with his power against sin. So why did he do that? Why now? Why did he decide at that moment in time that he was going to relax his patience and exercise judgment? Well, according to this scripture, it's to show his power and his glory to the vessels of mercy. I want us to look at Exodus, if you would. Go to Exodus chapter 15, by the way. That happens to be in the Old Testament. It's after the people of Israel went through the flood waters, and I want you to understand that Moses sang a song, wrote this song, and this is what he says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed, what, gloriously. What was he showing? Glory. He was showing his glory to the people of Israel. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. Ooh. The Lord is his name. 
Has anybody ever thought in this day and age that the Lord is a man of war? Most of us think what? We've been singing about it all morning. Love. And that's only what he is, is that we think in our culture. We sing a little ditty. God is love. God is love. Thank him. Thank him, all you little children. God is love. God is love. Right? And we sing it over and over again. How many of, how many of you would sing this to your little three-year-old? Praise him, praise him, all you little children. God is wrath. God is wrath. We man of war, the Lord. We don't like to think about that aspect, but it says right here, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariot and his host he cast into the sea, and all his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like stone. Your right hand, O Lord. Now listen again. Glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Drop down to verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by by whom you have purchased. You see, what is happening is God wants to show his power, and he chose Pharaoh to show his power and strength for his glory. Now, folks, don't you think that the people of Israel from that point on knew the glory of God? Absolutely, they knew the glory of God. How do we know? Well, since you're in your Old Testament, turn to Joshua, if you would. Joshua. That, too, is in the Old Testament. Joshua. And we look at chapter 2, and we see something here in Joshua chapter 2 that reveals to the people among the nations about the glory of God. Okay? As you look at verse 8, chapter 2, it says this. This is talking about the prostitute Rahab. Rahab takes in the two spies. She hides them from those who were trying to come and take them. And so she hides them up on the roof. And it says in verse 8, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted 
to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Did the people see the glory of God? Did they experience the glory of God by what God did through Pharaoh? Yes, they did. And what was happening now is what Paul was alluding to in chapter 9. He said, look, guys, God's going to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will harden whom he will harden. He will have compassion on whom he has compassion. And to show you what he is going to do so that his glory may be displayed, let's be reminded of Pharaoh and what happened to Pharaoh. He raised him up, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power that has endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So what Paul is alluding to is saying, look, this is what God has done. He's pleading for Israel. He is saying, I wish they would be saved. That was his passion. That was his heart in the very first part of chapter 9. But he's saying this, I know that God is going to show you what is going on that he's raised some people up so he can show not only his patience but his power so that you would believe and that you would glory in the Lord. So what we see is the patience of God. We see the power of God. And again, Charnock says this, the power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve, as holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. How vain would be the eternal counsels if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity. His promises, an empty sound. His threatenings, a mere scarecrow. God's power is like himself. Infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature. Here it is in a nutshell. In other words, God acts. God does. God works to continually show his glory. His acts towards Pharaoh demonstrated his patience. It demonstrated his power. It demonstrated his glory. So he followed through with this punishment of sin after great patience. Now, how unlike God is to those who claim they have power but cannot produce. (laughs) Guess what season it is, folks? It's the political season. Some of you have already been getting the little things in the mail. You've been seeing the advertisements on TV. You have been listening on the radio. I heard one just the other day. If you would elect me, I will change the course of the nation. Now, this is coming from someone running for Congress. I will change the course of the nation. I will fight against this. I will do this. 
I will do all these wonderful things for you because you are my constituents. Please vote for me. And once they attain office, few actually do. Few actually do. Their promises are empty. Their threatenings a mere scarecrow, as Charnock said. That's all they are. Not so with God. Not so with God. God acts, God does. In fact, Jesus even says, my father is working and I too must work. That means God continues to display his glory. How does he do that? He continues to punish sin. So what is the takeaway just from this one little verse that we're reading? I want you to understand. Here's the takeaway. It displays the displeasure of God against sin. God never, ever turns a blind eye to sin. He knows when we sin. You know, we attribute that God-like qualities at Christmas time to Santa Claus. You know, he knows when you are, what? Sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. We're giving him God-like qualities. You want to know why we don't celebrate Santa Claus in my household? Because he's not God. He's not God. That's one of the things that we have to understand and undo. And, and when we look at this, you know, we understand that God does not display a blind eye to sin. He doesn't do it. Psalm eleven four. the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in the heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Hmm. How then should we live if he is doing that? I will confess a sin unto you if it's a sin. May I be vulnerable? I grew up loving Superman. So last night in a moment of after being real tired, I flipped on the TV and I watched Superman and Lois. You haven't seen it? It's on CW. It's a goofy little thing. It's now uh, showing Superman is married. He has twin sons that are sophomores in high school. One of them got superpowers. One of them doesn't. And one of the sons that had superpowers was in a store with a friend, with his girlfriend, and they were talking to another friend at school, that's her dad's store. And with his super hearing, he heard someone around the corner, some of his classmates, stealing a bottle of liquor and putting it in. So he runs over real quick, and he blows it, and it freezes the floor. And so as they start running out, they slip and fall. The bottle falls out, and they have to take off and run. And he thinks he's doing a really good thing because nobody knows about his secret power except he looks up and there's a camera. Right up there videoing everything. Everything. So fortunately he has a granddaddy who happened to be the head of the defense department so they got all that erased and so it didn't reveal his secret. Always has a plot, right? But the point, that camera saw everything. Everything. Notice what God says. 
He's in his holy temple. He's on his throne. His eyes see. His eyelid tests the children of man. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. This is why we cry out as we preachers and we talk to you about this more and more and we preach to ourselves when we preach it. God is concerned that we walk in holiness. God is very concerned that we walk in holiness. Why is that? Why is that? Because when we do, it displays His glory. And what are we supposed to be about? Glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. So, we take away from this. It displays the displeasure of God against sin. It deals in patience, the second thing, in kindness. God deals in patience and kindness. But the punishment that will come is just. It's not for us to question. That's why he says... Who are you, O clay, to talk to the potter to do anything like this? God is going to do what God pleases to do. And it's going to be right and it's going to be just. We need to be reminded of that. Romans chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Oh my. Folks, understand this. God deals with patience. He deals with kindness. He allows his kindness and his patience to be extended even to those who are evil in knowing that that kindness and that patience will lead to repentance. But there are some that will not repent. So, folks, we need to understand this, and we need to understand it in this way, that God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that you will reap. Here's the third thing we take away from this. God's patience and power shows the reality of the riches of his grace and his mercy. If we go back to the story of Moses, the people that are sitting on the other side of the, of the sea, watching the glory and the power of God, do you really think that they sat there and cheered on Look what I did. They saw the power, the manifest presence of God. And as they were standing over there, what do you think their reactions would be? Their reactions would be thankfulness, number one, that God delivered them. But then there would be praise. And that's why Moses sang the song. So what happens, and we need to understand this, 
as believers, knowing that we are vessels of mercy, as believers we are vessels of mercy, as believers we are vessels of mercy, amen, okay, good, thank you, all right, we are vessels of mercy, what should it produce in us? Number one, write these down, if you don't have, uh, if you're not taking notes, do this, because this is unbelievably important. If you are vessels of mercy, it should produce in us profound humility, not arrogance. The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It should produce profound humility. Out of the masses of mankind, out of the masses of this evil wickedness that is called the earth and sinful humanity, he has gathered to him those who he has extended mercy that doesn't mean that you're smarter than your neighbor smarter than anybody else or more better looking or have done better works just because of his mercy he has done it so that should produce profound humility it also should produce extreme thankfulness extreme thankfulness but thankfulness that is in humility it is not like the rich person and the person who stood before and said, I have done all these things. I have done all this. I've done this. I've tithed. I've given. I've done all these charitable acts. Stood there in his arrogance. And yet the poor man stood over and said, Oh, wretched man that I am. Beat his breast. When we thank God, we thank him in humility that he saved us, that he redeemed us, that he called him to himself. Third thing is this. Knowing that we are vessels in mercy, it should produce in us consistent confidence and peace. God is in control. God is in control. I, uh, I know that there are people who listen to the news consistently, that read it, that digest it, that find every little piece of news that they can about what's going on in the world today, and they've lost their confidence that God is in control. What's going to happen? Russia's going to invade Ukraine. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. Oh, no, it's going to go everywhere. We don't know what's going to hit the fan, but, oh, no, what are we going to do? Folks, who's in the heavens? Who is on his throne? Who laughs? At the plans of men, according to Psalm 2. The Father, God is in control. That means we should be consistently confident that God has a plan. And should it give us peace? Absolutely it should. It should give us peace. He is in control. Now, will your circumstances and everything else not seem so peaceful? All the time. But you have to direct your thoughts Godward. That He is in control. He is sovereign. So whatever comes your way has been allowed by God. He is in control. Other thing we should it produce in us a desire to display the glory of God in all we do. If God desires to display his glory, we should have those same desires. And here's another thing, dear folks. This should Produce in us the highest reverence for God. Now, this is where I get on my soapbox a little bit. 
This is where I may seem nitpicky to some people, but remember I am old school because I am old. But what I want you to understand is this. It amazes me how people can come. Now, I'm talking about ministers, not necessarily you. That people can come and put on a quote-unquote worship service with all the irreverence that they do in order to attract people to God. And it just amazes me that God doesn't nuke them on the spot. It just absolutely amazes me. You want to see some downright irreverence and sinfulness? Go check out some of the YouTubes and check out some of the worship services that they call worship services. Saw one the other day where they had guys dressed up as stormtroopers. Do you know what Star Wars stormtroopers? Coming in and leading the opening worship service while they did a little dance to one of the songs in stormtrooper outfits. It just amazes me. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just absolutely flabbergasted at what people, ministers, who say they hold this highest reverence for God will do in a worship service that shows the most irreverent aspects of worship. Unbelievable to me. I don't get it. I don't. I have seen them where they've come and watched videos where they come and they stand in the pulpit and they've got shorts and flip-flops and t-shirts on preaching the word of God. And we say, well, that's not a big deal. Folks, understand something. When, when young men ask me that are in the ministry, they say, do you wear a suit and tie? I say, well, at least I wear a tie or a coat. Oftentimes it's a coat and a tie. It doesn't mean that you have to. It doesn't mean you have to, but there's some semblance of reverence that you have to give to show that you are an authority in what you're speaking and what you're preaching and what you're telling. That gives that authority. Even the teachers wore a different robe in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The teachers wore a robe to indicate that they were in a place of authority giving forth the word of God. When you look on your TV and you look at all the newscasts, what are the main guys doing? What are they there? They're in a suit and a tie. You look at lawyers in a courtroom, what are they in? A suit and a tie. You see a judge, he is in a robe. When we go to a funeral, we put on all the stuff. When we go to a wedding, we put on all the nice stuff because we're respectful of the dead, but you get in the pulpit and you disrespect God through what you're doing? That doesn't make sense to me at all. Now I climb down off my box, okay, and here I am. Back again. What I believe that ought to produce in us is the highest reverence. Lastly is this. Being a vessel of mercy should result in the highest praise. It should result in the highest praise. Those guys that were standing on the edge of the Red Sea, do you think they praised God? Why? They just were delivered from the hands of the enemy. Colossians tells us that we have been 
transformed and we have been taken out of the kingdom of darkness. We have been delivered, it says, from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. We should have the highest praise. That's again why we harp and why we say to people constantly, gather together in corporate worship to come and to praise the God, take uh, the God of your salvation. Take time, at least one hour of the day, to come corporately to praise the Lord together. So we all proclaim that we have been redeemed and give praise and glory and honor to God. That's what we should be about. So from just just this one little teaching, showing the power and the patience of God. He's got a plan and a purpose for everything he does. And now we have a plan and a purpose for what we should do. And that is to glorify him. And thank him that he was patient with us in bringing us to him in his due time. If you do not know this Lord Jesus Christ and his power to deliver you, you can. The Bible tells us that he came to die for our sins and it says if you place your trust in him as on what he did on the cross that he forgave you died for your sins forgave you of your sins and that he will give you eternal life as we get into chapter 10 in a couple of weeks you will see that if you call upon the name of the Lord believe that in your heart confess it with your mouth you will be saved and if you are here and you are not saved Be saved. Trust the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for showing us your glory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us life and life everlasting. Let us, O Lord, give you praise and give you glory and give you honor in all things that we do. Thank you again. For the precious blood of the Lord Jesus who has saved us from wrath. In Jesus' name.